Welcome to another exciting adventure of the Reading Instruction Show. I am your host, Dr. Andy Johnson. Title of today's podcast is called Forward to the Past with Basils. Now, in the 1980s, basils were the main tool used for teaching reading, and they still are today. Now, for those of you outside of education, a basil is a teaching manual for reading. It includes an anthology of stories for students to read, a teacher's manual with directions for how to teach reading, and consumable workbooks to use to teach reading subskills. Now, there are things in these anthologies that some people call stories. But calling them stories is a bit charitable. They're usually mush, designed not to engage readers, but to avoid offending anybody or causing any political waves. They are tasteless mush, white bread without butter, watery oatmeal, Lutheran coffee, so weak you can see the bottom of the cup. The publishers of Basils want their products to be adopted by large states, you see, some with very conservative agendas. There are state legislators and other decision makers in these states who tend to take umbrage at anything that doesn't reflect their world view. Their squeamishly narrow point of view about life and about reading instruction affects what they see. They think that reading is just a bunch of sounding out words. And since they graduated first grade, they also consider themselves to be experts on the subject of reading. I mention this because the publishers of Basils want to enhance their profits. That's why they use mush for stories and include a whole lot of sounding out word stuff in their packages. They want them adopted by these states. So, of course, they're not going to offend anybody, and they're going to put in them what they think people want to hear. Now, they're called basils because at one time they were thought to provide a base or a foundation for reading. And they were used in the early grades, but today they're used for grades 1, 6, and that name is not very accurate. So, instead of basils, we will call them what they are, Commercial Reading Programs, or CRPs. That's a much more accurate indicator of what they are. Now, CRPs are not designed to maximize students' literacy potential. Rather, they are designed to maximize profits. ka Now, I'm about to tell you a well-guarded, super-secret thing that you are not to share with anybody. This secret has been buried deep within Area 51 for years and was only recently smuggled out by space aliens. And this is the secret. The ultimate goal of the educational industrial complex is not to help students develop their full literacy potential or to improve society, or to enhance democracy. Publishing companies don't really care about what research might say is best practice. Sure, they put up a good front, but they don't much care 
about what's best for the students in your classroom or your kids. Their bottom line is the bottom line. It's to generate profit, not create literate human beings. Now, there's nothing wrong with profit. Absolutely not. I'm not calling for the dismantling of capitalism or the downfall of the free market system. There's nothing wrong with profit. As long as it doesn't come at the expense of somebody or something else. But too often in education world, that occurs, especially when the educational industrial complex is involved. It's very difficult to be for profit and for people at the same time. It's hard to serve two masters. Thus, the profits of the educational industrial complex often come at the expense of children, schools, school districts, and ultimately society. And don't be fooled by the testimony of famous people on the inside cover of these CRPs. The CRPs pay them handsomely to have an opinion and to have a specific opinion. Imagine that. And I'm talking about hardcore trophies, Houghton Mifflin reading, Macmillan, McGraw-Hill, Open Court, Scott Forsman, big money, ka-ching, money being made at the expense of our children. So let's take a trip back to the future or future to the past. When I started teaching second grade in River Falls, Wisconsin in August of 1983, I certainly didn't have any real understanding of reading instruction or the reading process. I had had one reading methods course in my teacher education program. Today, they got maybe two, but that's it. Back then, my total knowledge related to reading instruction consisted of the knowledge that was in the assigned textbook, much of which I didn't understand at the time, and the things that the professor told me, much of which was ununderstandable. So, like many teachers of the day, I just opened up the commercial reading program and followed the directions. I did whatever they told me to do. Because the CRPs were scripted, everything you were supposed to say to your students was written in bold-faced print. Good morning, boys and girls. Today we are going to look at the short A sound. Easy peasy, puddin' and pie. How could anyone fail to teach reading? You just read the directions. And this, by the way, is exactly what the science of reading and publishing companies are pushing today. Just open the package and follow the directions with fidelity. Don't think, they tell teachers. We'll have none of that thinking stuff around here. Just shut up and follow the directions. Now, back in 1983, these stories, like today, were basically mush. And nobody likes to read mush. And many of the skills in the workbooks back in 1983, just like today, had little to do with helping students to read or to learn to read. There was just a 
bunch of reading subskills that somebody determined to be important. But who was it, and how did they come up with these skills? Well, here's exactly how they came up with the skills to include in these basils, these commercial reading programs. The designers tried to take the complex act of reading and break it down into a bunch of teeny tiny little parts. This breakdown and analysis of the complex act of reading makes sense to an adult mind. That's because adults have the big picture. We know where everything fits in. And more importantly, adults have lots of knowledge and experience and the ability to analyze things using advanced cognitive operations. We know where the teeny tiny puzzle bits fit into the larger puzzle. We've seen the cover. We know what the picture looks like, so of course it makes sense to us. But young children have very little knowledge of reading and very little experience. And they are just beginning to use very rudimentary forms of cognitive operations. But what do we do? We give them a little teeny tiny piece of the puzzle one at a time. And it makes little sense. These reading subskills, these teeny tiny puzzle pieces, they have no idea how it fits into the larger puzzle. They don't even know what the puzzle is. The very important but not really little puzzle piece makes no sense to them outside the context of the whole. But in 1983, as today, it was assumed that if you put these little teeny tiny reading subskills, little parts back together again, you'd get a skilled reader at the end. Just like putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. And that's why we call it a Humpty Dumptyan approach to reading instruction. And this is exactly what Emily Hanford, Louisa Motes, state legislators in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and other states, and the Science of Reading Clown Club think we should do. They want us to put Humpty, to dump, Humpty Dumpty together again, one teeny tiny little reading subskill at a time. And the I thinkism here is that at the end, readers will be able to use all these teeny tiny little parts to create meaning with print. They think, without any supporting research, that all these teeny tiny little reading subskills will naturally transfer to authentic reading situations. And of course, all this Humpty Dumpty nonsense is based on a theory, a series of I thinkisms, personal anecdotes. I thinkisms. Now, back in 1983, the basic CRP reading class went something like this You gave students seat work, what you called a small group of students, other students, to the kidney-shaped table at the front of the room for reading instruction. Seat work, work done at your seat. And it usually consisted of workbook pages or some other type of lame work. 
not designed to teach reading, but to keep students busy at their seats so you could, quote, teach, unquote. Hence the name seat work. Not reading work, but seat work. And you didn't really teach. You just read the directions and followed the scripted dialogue in the CRP. And then you just told students to sound it out when they got stuck on a word during round-robin reading. Sound it out, you'd say. Sound it out. That was my advanced pedagogical strategy for reading back in 1983. And I'm not too dissimilar from most teachers. My reading instruction was not dissimilar to many classes of the time. When students were done with their all-important seat work, which really wasn't all that important, they could find a good book to read. Little did I know back then that finding a good book to read should be the main work of a good reading class. Now, there was usually a three-day cycle. Day one, I'd introduce the vocabulary words. Then we'd do round-robin reading with a new story. And then I'd teach a skill, do a workbook page, and send them back to their desk to do another really important, but not really, workbook page. On day two, we'd silently reread the same story. I'd teach another skill and then send them back to their seats to do another really important, but not really, workbook page. On day three, we'd do some other lame skills work that had nothing to do with real reading. I'd teach the lame skill that had nothing to do with real reading and send them back to do yet another really important but not really workbook page. I'd go to the next story, rinse and repeat and repeat and repeat. The problem was that with all these really important but not really workbook pages, students had no time to practice reading good books. How do you get better at anything if you don't practice? We did far more workbook pages in 1983 than actual reading. That's what they want today. Now, looking back, it seems that some students learn to read not because of our teaching, but in spite of our teaching. Now, good reading instruction in 1983 was good direction following because the basal had everything laid out for teachers. After all, the basals were put together by reading experts. Who was I, a little teacher, to question them, these reading gods up high? Even if a skill or worksheet seemed totally lame or useless and not at all something that would benefit our students, our job was to implement what the writers of the basils told us to implement and in the way they wanted us to implement them. Within the CRP, stories and skills were grouped into things called units. There was a test at the end of every unit to test students on the really important but not really skills from their workbook pages. And in 1983, good reading was good unit test taking. Good reading instruction was good unit test passing. 
it didn't really matter how effective a student was at creating meaning with print or how much reading that kid did outside a class. If the student could successfully complete the end of unit test, by golly, that kid was a good reader and by golly, I was a good reading teacher. That was gosh darn good literacy instruction for many teachers back in 1983, except it wasn't good at all. Looking back now, I know that I failed a lot of students because I didn't have me as a literacy professor and I didn't have my books to read. And it would be another 40 years before my podcast became a thing. So two questions to ask. First, did students enjoy reading class back then? Reading is supposed to be enjoyable and interesting. That's why we do it. But did they enjoy it? Were they interested? Did they look forward to coming to class every day? And I have to say, hell no, not really. Who gets excited about the schwa sound or diphthongs or stories about Ned and Ted on a bed that was red? Yay, they say, I get to go to reading class and do worksheets and read mush out loud. I can't wait. And second, did I enjoy teaching reading? And again, hell no, it was boring, it was lifeless, it was dull, nothing fun or creative about it. I just opened the manual and did whatever was in the CRP, boring as hell. So students didn't really like reading class, and I didn't really like teaching reading class. We were creating a whole bunch of not liking, when instead we could have been reading and celebrating good books and learning skills in the context of good books and writing stories and sharing stories. We could have actually been learning how to read and to be and become literate. What a waste. But forward to the past, this is exactly what the Science of Reading Clown Club is advocating today. They want us to go back in time, to adopt what wasn't very effective in the 80s, and bring it back with a vengeance to 2023 and 2024, back to the future. Hey, Doc Brown, can you help me find a flux capacitor? Now, whole language. In the late 80s, I began to hear about a different type of reading instruction called whole language. Whole language. Now, I realize the instant reflective reaction that some have when they hear whole language. The reaction is debunked, debunked. Debunked, they proudly exclaim as they march around the room with high knees. It's a reflexive reaction for some, especially within the Science of Reading Clown Club. Vygotsky would call this a lower mental function. These include sucking, grasping, attention, involuntary behaviors, elementary perception, and debunking things. Debunked, it's been debunked, it's debunked. Movement from lower to higher mental functions occurs through language, 
culture, and social interaction. So one has to ask, what is it that keeps clowns using this lower-level reflexive mental function instead of moving toward the higher mental functions, such as logic, planning, decision-making, and other advanced cognitive operations? And the answer is simple. They're not exposed to a great deal of culture or social interaction related to reading instruction. They're stuck at this lower-level reflexive mental function because they reject reason and research, and they won't listen to any idea that may contradict their own. So, the science of reading clown club ends up living in echoing silos screaming, debunk, 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 every time they encounter certain words that don't fit in their restrictive reading paradigm. Now, let me be honest. When I first heard about whole language, I had no idea what they were talking about. Couldn't wrap my head around it. It made no sense. How was it possible to teach reading without worksheets? And how could you teach anything without a teacher's manual? What do you do for 60 minutes if you don't have a teacher's manual to tell you what to do? And how do you know what, what to say to students? And how do you know if children are learning without end-of-unit tests? And how could students possibly learn if they were enjoying themselves? They shouldn't enjoy themselves. And how was it possible to learn to read if students weren't reading Marsh designed to reinforce teeny tiny reading subskills? Those all important sub skills which really aren't. And won't all that reading good books stuff and talking about books and writing their own stories and sharing their own stories, won't that get in the way of learning to read and write? And who is going to tell children to sound it out when they come to a word they don't recognize? Students shouldn't talk to each other. Are you crazy? They have to be quiet. That's how learning happens. They have to sit quietly and absorb all the words that come out my mouth. That's how it works, you see. My vocal cords, they vibrate and produce a sound. The sound waves float through the air magically and vibrate the eardrums of students and go on to carry electrical signals to their brains that are converted to words and the words are converted to sentences and ideas and learning takes place. That's how it happens, don't you know? None of this talking and reading and writing and thinking and enjoying. Learning should not be enjoyable or conversational. It should be quiet drudgery, damn it. Students should not talk to each other. They should not be able to choose what to read and they should not be able to read enjoyable books. And any oral reading mistakes should be corrected instantly with a loud, sharp voice. That's the way God intended it to be. However, just because you don't know about something or don't understand something doesn't mean that something is bad. It just means you don't know or understand, hence whole language. 
Today, the science of reading people, state legislators, and clowns consider whole language to be something horrible. But they don't know what that horrible thing is. But I'll tell you what is horrible is coming to conclusions on things with absolutely no knowledge of what that horrible thing is. And that's not science. And it certainly isn't reading science. It's witch doctory. But to give you just a little perspective on whole language and commercial reading programs, at the height of whole language in the 90s, commercial reading programs began including the words whole language on the covers and in the descriptions of their products. Imagine that. Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> slimy bastards for 600, Ken. The category is slimy bastards for 600 and a chance to move ahead. This is on the cover and in the descriptions of CRPs today. Oh, uh, what is science of reading? Bing, 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 bing. That's right. This has been another adventure of the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host, Dr. Andy Johnson. Our next podcast will examine reading workshops.